It's 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do to do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man into death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us, and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armony and Mephibosheth. Two Mephibosheths in the same family, yes. Just make sure you don't, you got that. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon, upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who, who had stolen them from the public square of Bashan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So, First, let me say, I wasn't going to preach on this passage, but my wife said, nobody understands this passage, so you should probably preach about it. So I said, okay. The reason I was hesitant is because, have you noticed that since chapter 11, when David sinned with Bathsheba, it's been a pretty miserable run. It's been a dark series, and that's not by accident. The point is very clear. The author is telling you, sin is bad, and it leads to terrible things. So we're hit another difficult passage, but let me say this. This is more of an academic one, but important for you to know. After chapter 20 in 2 Samuel, the story of Samuel basically stops. Chapters 21 to 24 seem to have been put together by the author to be an epilogue, a summary so that there are these random stories that don't actually follow chronologically. We'll explain that in a second. But they're meant to give you an overall summary of here is what you are to believe and think about David. It's a summary of his life. And it's arranged in a very intentional pattern, which I'll show next week. And this first one, for instance, doesn't happen. This story doesn't happen at the end of David's reign. It's almost impossible. 
And here's one simple reason you can tell. Have you noticed that throughout the second Samuel, there's two occasions at least that hint that David has killed off the line of Saul. When he wants to save Mephibosheth, he says, is there anyone left that I can show kindness to? Which suggests he is wiped out enough or they're all gone, and he's not sure if one survives. And then in chapter 16, Shimei comes and says, you man of blood, God is avenging you with Absalom because of the blood you brought and what you did to Saul's line. So those, those statements only make sense if David had already done this and wiped out a good chunk of Saul's line. So it seems that the author has taken this and said, it makes more sense here. But to be honest, chronology doesn't make a difference because the story is still problematic. It still asks the same questions. It doesn't matter when it takes place. And there's basically two ways his, his, the church historically has, saw, has seen this passage. The positive one, the one that's easier for a pastor to do, is to see that David is a good guy. It makes David look very good. And here is what one commentator says. This picture shows that David is faithful, effective, pious, and respectful of Saul. He does what is necessary to save his people from famine. Thus, a positive picture of David emerges. So this interpretation looks at this and says, hey, David is a king. He makes a tough choice. And by this difficult choice that he bears the burden of, he saves Israel from this famine. Okay, that's fair. Then there's this more cynical interpretation, which I, also, I, don't, I don't agree with both, either of them, to be honest. The more cynical one, held by a few, few guys, crusty old commentators, <laughs> is this one. This is all a lie. These guys say, this story's made up. David made up the story. He never heard anything from God. He uses that fake oracle as a pretext to kill Saul's family because he needs him out of the way. That's pretty cynical. That's pretty dark, even for David. I think the answer is simple. These stories at the end of the book of Samuel try to tell us the truth that we've seen all through this series about David. He is a guy who has inherited a mess, but also creates a mess. He's a guy who is a covenant keeper as much as he can be, but also a covenant breaker oftentimes. And so I think the story on one level is trying to tell you, hey, David is a man who is trying and he clings to God ultimately, but that he fails continually. That's, I think, what the overall picture is. But I think if we look even more closely at this and don't get distracted by this debate about how does it see David. See, sometimes I think we get distracted. We think we're trying to decide who's right, David or Saul or whoever. Both wrong. Who is right? God. And God alone comes out of this story, not just, it's such a miserable story, but I'm going to show, hopefully, we're going to see as we dig into it, that Christ alone comes out of it. And you're going to see, actually, I think, a greater picture of God's love, even amidst this misery. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to look at it the way it comes to us. It talks to us about sin, about atonement, and then a response to the atonement. Okay? There's a sin, something to atone for it, and then there's responses by Rizpah and David. Now, that's what we're going to do. So, first, we cannot deny the darkness of this passage. Sin. It is dark. Here's some context. The reason that there's this beef to begin with is that Joshua, 200 years earlier, when he was coming into the promised land with Israel's army, he was told very clearly, don't make a pact with anyone. No one in the land, no pacts. Defeat them, take their land. Simple. Joshua, when he meets the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites were aware of this, how the, Israel must have been terrifying to the, world, to the region because they're coming and they're just destroying everything in their path. The Gibeonites come and pretend that they don't live in the land, but that they're visitors. 
and they say, no, no, we, we're, we're just visitors here. We're just visitors. Just, uh, uh, we'd love to have a pact with you because we, we'll be with you guys. Joshua then says, okay, fine, we'll make a pact with you. It turns out afterwards that he realizes he was deceived into making a pact to keep them, to not destroy them. But he doesn't break the pact. He says, fine, we'll keep this, and we'll talk about why he does that later. But then this is the ancient covenant that then Saul violates. We don't know why. We have no record of it except for here. We don't know when Saul does this. Maybe he's trying to purge Gil, uh, Gibeah because that's his hometown, and he wants to make it his capital. We don't know. But he goes in and he slaughters as many of the Gibeonites as he can find. God says, this is a problem, and this is why the famine has lasted as long as it has. David then says, well, what should I do? He goes to the Gibeonites and says, well, how can I make this right? And they say, blood. We need seven guys to die. Seven is a good, perfect, it's a perfect number, the wholeness number in Hebrew, so it's a fitting number, even if it's not tit for tat, as many Gibeonites have died. David accepts this miraculously, not miraculously, perhaps not typically, but we'll talk about that too. He accepts it. They are executed, hung before the Lord. It's a, it's a weird Hebrew word. It could mean impaled. And they're killed either way. And then the bodies are left to rot in the sun because this is the sign of what they're, they're to be disgraced. It's part of the indignity of, of, of the death. Rizpah then, this mother of two of these seven guys, has this vigil where she lays out and for possibly months sits beside the rotting corpses of her son and won't allow them the indignity because they're supposed to be buried. And she doesn't want any more indignity to come upon their sons, so she is there sitting vigil with them. David sees this and then is moved to take the bones of all those men who died, plus Saul and Jonathan, and bury them properly. The end. Famine comes to an end. That's the story. Now, it's pretty brutal. It's dark. And we have a lot of questions that come and say things like, well, why? Why should a seven guys who are unrelated have to die for this? Why did they even keep this pact to begin with? I mean, isn't this just brutal? Isn't it just bloody? And this is not the passage Christians share with their unchurched friends and say, hey, it's a God of love. We don't generally do that, and I understand why. But here's what I'm going to say. The reason we, and skeptics surely, a secular worldly person reading the Bible is repulsed by this, and we should be too. You're supposed to be, just for the record. They want you to be shocked by it. But if you begin to ask questions, and we all, I think we all do this instinctively. If you immediately see, read this and start saying, but there's crimes against humanity here. These people, they shouldn't, Rizpah shouldn't have to suffer like this. These boys shouldn't have had to have died for this. That's the right impulse, but also a bit wrong. Because what you're doing is you're reducing this to a human problem. Whereas the Bible says, ultimately, God is the one who's offended first, before man. And although we think we're doing the right thing when we say protect the human right life, and we are, we have to be careful because if we only see it as a human rights problem, you actually minimize the sin. You make it less offensive than it is if there is a holy and loving God behind it. Now, I'm going to explain why that is. But let me let C.S. Lewis say it better than me. So Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, addresses this question. And he start, let us, he'll start us off. Here's what he says. It's a bit lengthy, but it's worth it. When Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested because really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You ask for a loving God, you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not, a cold, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious, conscientious, 
magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself. How this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. But the fact seems unquestionable. The impassable God speaks as if it suffered passion, and that which contains in itself the cause of its own and all other bliss talks as though it could be in want and yearning. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach trivial meaning to the word love and uh, and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. Now, I might might have left you in the dust a little, but let me explain what he's saying. First and foremost, it's very simple. You do not exist for yourself. When humanity hammers humanity, the first and primary thing we should be thinking about is look at the injustice done to God. And what happens when we stray from God, the injustice that flows from that is this, the world we have. And he is saying so incredibly, this God, under, for some whatever reason, loves you so much that he doesn't need to get involved, but he has chosen to. And that he actually cares how you function and live. That he binds himself in so that when you get married or have a pact with the Gibeonites, he is there present. So if you break that pact, you break your covenant with God. Before you break it with your wife when you sleep with somebody else, before you break it with the Gibeonites, Joshua had every legal right to break that law, that pact with the Gibeonites, everyone, because they lied. But he still didn't break it, and we're going to see why later. So we have this God who loves us, who gets involved in our lives. And because we are not our own, we have to make, we have to make decisions based on that. So when, they, when these seven men are offered, and we're going to see it in a moment as well, they're offered, but we, we want to get offended by, them, by what's done to them. Do we dare see what's the offense that comes to God first? Joshua understood this because when Israel realized the Gibeonites had deceived them, they start mumbling and they say, we should kill them, Joshua. We should kill them. They've wronged us blood for blood. Joshua's response is this. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. You see, the pact is with God. And so long as God lives, so does the pact. Even when it's a miserable pact we shouldn't have got into, God doesn't intervene and say, go ahead, Joshua, it's okay this time. He says, Joshua, your words make a difference. You're to be my people in the land, and if you start breaking your covenants, you're showing people that I break my covenants. So you made a mistake, you're going to live with it. You're going to live with this mistake. So Joshua honors it. Saul, of course, doesn't. And Joshua understood that if he breaks his pact, he offends God, first and foremost. He's the one offended. In the 17th century, a bunch of Christians got together. It's a council in Dortrecht. Many of you are Dutch. It's in the Netherlands. And uh, they came out with something called the Canons of Dort. And long story as to what they're about, but there's one statement in there in specific that's interesting for us. And it says that our sin is very highly offensive to God very highly offensive to God. And what he means is this. You wanted a God that cared about justice? You have one. He cares so much that he allows his grand holy nature to be offended when you shortchange a market, somebody in the market. When you cut somebody off, he says, come on, man. 
God is willing to allow himself to be impacted by that. That's why when he comes out in Acts 9, he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? He agrees somehow, miraculously, to care enough to feel the injustice done in the world. And therefore, when we wrong people, God is offended first and foremost. This is why, and you know, this God who loves us so supremely then says, not only does your sin offend me, but it absolutely destroys you. It destroys you. And this is why Christ, who comes as meek as a lamb, is able to say with such confidence, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Better that your hand, was it? Uh, it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, why does he speak this way? It's because he knows that your sin is not just unfortunate, not something that can be atoned for simply. It has eternal consequences. And if that's true, if your sin can lead you to eternal death, then it, of course, a severe response to it, like amputation, not literally, but spiritual amputation, cutting yourself off from that which causes it, is not too harsh a prescription. So sin is incredibly destructive. And, you know, the John Owen, this um, Puritan theologian, who if you're not reading John Owen, you, should, you really should. John Owen and the Puritans are the greatest diagnosticians of the human heart that God ever provided for us outside of Scripture. And John Owen says this, and he says mortify. Mortify means be killing, to kill something, okay? Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if let alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. So sin, and what we're seeing in this story, is intentionally brutal. We're not, we want to look away from it, don't we? Don't you want to stop reading these passages with me? Don't you want to say, gosh, another miserable one? And we want to look away from the sin. And yet God responds to us when we want to look away in the same way the ghost in the Christmas carol speaks to Scrooge. When Scrooge gets sick of looking at his past sins, he says, I will not look anymore. And Dickens tells us, but the Spirit forced him to. Because he is not loving if he allows you to look away from that, which is your salvation. And before you accept chemotherapy, you need to know you have cancer. And he forces us sometimes to look at difficult scriptures to see the cost of our sin, the depth of it. It's not just a faux pas of humans. We have wronged a holy God. And this is a big problem in scripture. And if you're not a Christian, you won't understand that, but that's okay. Here's the great challenge before we move to the second point. It's self-inflicted. Joshua, when he makes this pact with the Gibeonites, it says very clearly, the author wants us to know, it says he did not ask counsel from the Lord. He just did it because it was the right prudent political thing to do, he thought. And then isn't it interesting that David asks God, why is this famine happening? But he doesn't say, what should I do to atone for it? He instead goes to the victims. The Gibeonites says, what should I do? Listen, what did you expect them to say? If you ask, this is why we don't let the victims choose the, the punishment in our legal system, because it'll be brutal. Humans are brutal creatures. And David, this is self-inflicted. They're self-inflicted, and yet we can't let God off the hook entirely, because God stands back and doesn't stop it. He allows it to happen. He lets it keep going. We look and we want God to intervene, but he never seems to in these, in these hard situations. And we are being asked, I think, to look at the sin and sit in it, 
Don't look away. See what your sin is. See what it causes. See the misery of, of Rizpah. See the misery and see that you and I are accountable for this. And that's part of what this, these brutal stories is doing. It's drawing us to see the, the brutality of sin. But then it also says something more about atonement. So, if sin is really as bad as I'm suggesting, and it's as bad as the Bible suggests, what is an appropriate atonement? I know we have lawyers in the church. Lawyers, your job is to go and write up a list of charges against humanity. What is the cost? What are the damages owed by humanity for one dead human being? Seven dead human beings. Canada, roughly over the last 15 years, has aborted about 100,000 children a year. What's the cost? How much damages is enough? What is the right amount? And then once you have this list of charges, humanity, who's going to pay it? Who pays it? Because if you let the courts do it, and this is part of the challenge, courts are wonderful. I'm not suggesting anything against courts. But do you know in Canada only 39% of crimes are solved? 61% aren't. I won't tell you how many murderers go free. It's terrifying. If justice is only going to happen in this world, well, sorry, those of you who have hard lives, your children are struggling, you're struggling, no justice for you. Unless there's a holy God. But this is the question. What is it? Who's going to pay for it? When, God, when David asks the Gibeonites, they respond exactly like Shylock from uh, Merchant of Venice, remember? Shylock and Merchant of Venice, when he's, he, he wants his pound of flesh, this pound of flesh, that which I demand, I have dearly bought. It is mine and I will have it, he says. Oh, it's up there. It is mine and I will have it. This is humanity. Our heart cries out for justice and we will have it one way or the other. But here's the challenge of it. Let me use another story for it. I, I mentioned this year, uh, months ago, but uh, you probably forgot. I imagine. I've realized over the years that I remember my sermons better than anybody else. <laughs> and that's okay. I'm, having to, I'm getting over that. Um, <laughs> back in September, I mentioned, after the Second World War, many people, the Germans specifically, but people all over the world were wondering, who are we? How did we get here? How did this happen? And there was a German playwright named Gunther uh, Rutenborn, and he has this fictional play. He's, he creates a, a, a story. And he says, here's what this story is about. We are going to put humanity on trial and decide who's responsible for the Holocaust and all the mess. Who is it? And the trial is, goes along very swimmingly. It starts with the men. The men blame their wives. <laughs> Typical of the garden, isn't it? The wives then say, no, it's not us, it's our leaders, political leaders. The political leaders say, no, it's the generals. And it goes all the way up until it gets to the queen of the land. And the queen of the land gets, takes a stand, and she says, listen, yeah, I was brutal, but don't blame me. Blame the God who made these rotten people who will listen to nothing but the rod. It's not my fault these people are stubborn. So the crowd agrees. Everybody in the trial says, you're right. It's God's fault. He's the author of this mess. And they say, you know what? This God, what he should suffer, he should be born as a man and suffer the same anguish and indignities that we suffer. He, life for life, pound of flesh, right? Gibeonites. Because humanity realizes, Rutenborn is saying this, humanity knows there's injustice and knows somebody has to pay for it. But the nearer we get to justice, the more we realize we're responsible. But we can't stomach it. So we want somebody else to take that spot for us. And in the play, at the end of the play, the judge stands up and says, I am God. He had presided over it the whole time, and he says, I'll take it. I'll take your sentence. 
I'll do it all. And this is the judgment that, that the Bible suggests, that we want justice. This is why you want to look away. This is why you actually want to look away from the atonement itself. You don't even want to look at Rizpah weeping, do you? Can you imagine in this modern age, a woman laying beside corpses, arguably for months, weeping over their child? You want to look away from not just sin, but from the atonement you want to look away from. Because the atonement is ugly. Dale Davis is an old scholar from, I don't know, Southern Reform Seminary, I think? I don't remember. He says this, Christians must beware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too accustomed to Golgotha, perhaps Gibeah can shock us back into the truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. The cross is brutal. And if we, we should be rejoicing because Christ saved us, but not until we have seen the cost, the brutal cost of atonement. It would be crazy to write up this list of things against humanity of how terrible we are and then say, oh, but it can be overcome just by like this. No, brutality like it or not, must be brutally dealt with. This is the law of, of God, the law of the world. We do it all the time, and yet we reject it when we see it in the Bible. It's because we're hypocrites, all of us. And we don't want to look at it. And this is exactly what we're saying. The passage shows us that sin and atonement are unapologetic, unapologetically ugly, and ugly things need ugly deaths. And now we turn to the response. We turn to Rizpah, this woman I've said this, I think I said this to the young adults on Tuesday. Um, women don't show up often in the Old Testament, but when they do, they're very strong. They make incredibly poignant statements. We have so much in this book. We have Bathsheba submitting. Seemingly, she says nothing in the face of being taken advantage of. We have Tamar resisting being taken advantage of. And here we have Rizpah, who does nothing to prevent the deaths of her sons. At least we're not told but she does everything to protest in her vigil again when they die. And when she sits there, if you know, she is one of, go to 2 Samuel chapter 3, I think it's verse 7, uh, she is one of Samuel's or Saul's concubines. So David is struggling to find offspring. And two of her sons are given up and killed as part of this sacrifice to, to, to take care of this blood guilt that they have. They are hung, they're left out, and Rizpah sits beside them. We're told she starts the vigil in the spring, and we don't know when it ends, but we says when the rain comes. If it comes in the normal rain season of Israel, she's there till September. That's, that's a long time. We don't know how long, but a long time. So, it's uncomfortable. Anyone who has ever sat with people who are mourning a death or anything, you know, as much as we love the people we're mourning with, it's uncomfortable. It's difficult to be around people who are mourning because it's difficult for us to enter into it sometimes. And don't you want to run away? Don't you just want it to end? It's not that you don't love the person, but it's that you sit and you think, I can't stand being around this kind of sadness. It's so difficult. It's anguish. It's, it's horrible to be around. And when we see these stories, you see what we do. We distract. And you come to the pastor and you say, but where is God in this? You know, justice, logic, philosophy. You're distracting yourself. Don't take your eyes off the misery that your sin causes and the cost of the atonement for your sin. Stare at it first before you take your eyes off it. But in her mourning, we see God, the shadow of the cross. This is why sons have died 
for something they didn't do, and by their death, healing and peace comes to the land. And she's mourning over it. Are you starting to see? You see? So it's, it's a sign, it's a shadow of the cross. The wages of sin are death. That's simple. But the brutality of justice should be mourned by Christians. When Christ is at the, cross, at the tomb of Lazarus, listen, Lazarus is getting exactly what humans deserve, biblically, theologically. He's dead. That's the price of sin. The wages of sin is death. Christ is at the tomb. He knows in 30 seconds he's going to raise that guy up and everybody's going to be cheering. And yet, he doesn't say, hey, stop crying. He Instead, he weeps with them. He weeps with them, and actually the Greek says that he snorts like an animal. He's angry at what he sees. So he, knowing he is power over life and death, still sees our suffering and enters into it and weeps with us. And he's angry about it because death should be something that we get angry about. Even if there's life after, we weep and mourn death now. And Christ does that. And in Rizpah, we see clearly the grim price of our sin and the atonement. Sin is what led them to be killed, but the atonement is what had to have them killed. And so when we look at the cross, we ought to be mourning both our sin and our atonement. Both. But not forever. We don't mourn the atonement forever. We should weep that Christ had to die. But of course, there is something that comes after. And here we see David. When David stares at Rizpah, it's interesting, right, that God only forgives it at the end of once David has done his thing. God doesn't say, now that the men are dead, famine's over. God waits. And it's not until somebody has responded to the scene of pity and grief of this death and the atonement. And David sees it and he says, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. Something so miserable but so noble in what Rizpah is doing. I have to act with nobility in response to it. So he goes and he tries to do what he can to gather the shattered remains of his life and of the past and of Saul's house. And he takes the bones and he buries them with some sort of dignity. And if he does that in response to seeing a woman crying about her lost sons, remember, her sons were taken from her. What do we do in response to a God who gave his sons? Rizpah would never have said, take my sons, they can do it. Die, they'll die for you. But God comes and says, as miserable as it's going to be, and as much as I will grieve like Rizpah, I'm going to do it because I love them enough to suffer for them. And when we stare at that, when you begin to stare, when you stare enough at the sin and the atonement, you begin to be moved a little bit like David in response to it. Because as a Christian, you see that all the grief that God endures, he thought it was worth it for you. This is why C.S. Lewis says, it's amazing. I don't understand why he loves us. It's a terrible transaction. He's lost in this transaction, but he loves us. So as Christians, we lean on that. If you're a skeptic, I say unapologetically, here is your God. This is why the sermon series is called Here is Your King. Here it is. Your king is not seen in necessarily only in these fluffy passages. He is seen here in the dirt of sin and atonement. Here we see the love of God on display for us. He is not aloof and disinterested. He is more committed to justice than you can imagine, but also more in love with you than you dare dream. He preferred to bear the price of injustice so that you could have the benefits of justice. There's only two responses available to this sort of... Well, I guess there's three. You can still rebel against this. You can say, no, I'm not accepting it. But the only two good responses are worship and submission. If you're a, if you're a skeptic, submit. You're not going to get a better king because there is no other or better king. 
If you're a Christian, worship. Sing loud. Be stupid. Be stupid loud. No one here is going to judge. Well, maybe they will judge you. I won't judge you. Well, maybe I will. No, but raise our hands. Let's worship this king. This is these songs that we had today. Boy, he's incredible. He's incredible that all of this, you and I would cry blood, a pound of flesh. He says, my pound of flesh for them. This is God. This is our king. Let's pray.